0: Hello and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Fern Sakamoto, who is a lecturer at Nagoya University of Foreign Studies. Uh, very nice to meet your acquaintance.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me here today.
0: The paper that we're going to be speaking about today is from 2015 and it's called Teaching Intercultural Competence More Than Just Culture. How did you become interested in intercultural competence?
1: Yeah, so I was employed, I got a new job at a prefectural university, and I was employed there as part of the, what was it called? The Global Human Resource Development Project. And they've they've changed the name now, and it's called the Glo- Go Global Japan Project.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but
1: that was a government initiative that um, provided the university with a lot of funding. And the idea was that they would somehow create a program to cultivate or what I'm calling globally competent students.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I was tasked with setting up a whole lot of courses for students to make them globally competent. And so, of course, I realized, OK, well, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> um, and so I had to start thinking about that. And originally, yeah, I, I started reading a lot about intercultural competence and thinking, well, that seems like a good place to start
0: Mm. and so we've spoken about the topic of global jinxai before um how do you think that that's kind of changed since since you started investigating it how has your opinion of this concept changed
1: i think the more i look into it the more i realize that we don't seem to be able to agree on what it means Mm. and that the majority of the literature around intercultural competence or, or global competence, and you know, some people say they're the same thing, some people say they're not, but the, the majority of the literature seems to be coming out of the West. It's mostly from North America or Europe, um, and then there are a lot of studies where people apply frameworks mm-hmm. from those contexts in Japan, um, but there's not sort of much information about, well, what does it actually mean in Japan to be globally competent? Is it the same? Do students need the same set of skills or attitudes or the same knowledge as students in other parts of the world? Um, so, yeah, the more I read about it, the less I understand, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it is a concept that it, when it's not really correctly defined or properly defined in the in the literature that brings these programs about, it does leave it up to the teachers and to the universities themselves to come up with their own, definitions of it and then work from from those parameters. When In reading your paper, what actually drew me to it was the fact that you quote and cite several people who've already been featured on uh, our podcast. So Dr. Jennifer Jenkins and uh, Dr. Nobuyuki Hino. And a lot of what they speak about in their work is the context of the students and trying to match the activities that you do with the students who there are in front of you so how have you changed your approach or have you changed your approach uh, in the classroom based on your findings and based on your research
1: I think that is a work in progress still that I'm Mm. constantly um, changing what I do, or what I try to do, because the the group of students in front of me, you know is constantly changing. And mm. I, I think it's very important to be aware of what the students need, what they are learning the language for, if we're mm. talking about English language teaching, and allowing them some input then into what it is that they need to get from my class to you know meet the objectives of that mm. course, which are not tied down in general to specific, you know, vocabulary or grammar, but there are usually larger goals. The way that each student interprets those goals or um, wants, well, how can I say this? The way in which those goals relate to each student are not the same. Um, So I'm being quite vague here (laughs) because (laughs) it's really hard to pin down a certain kind of English to teach or a certain way to teach it when you're, current, you're, you're constantly met by a new group of faces um, and, a, and a new group of needs and a, an ever-changing, I guess, wider context as well, in terms of what um, we are all using language for.
0: Shall we be a little bit more specific then, specifically in the paper? Uh, you included group discussion work as part of your background to your study. Did you find that students were receptive to that kind of teaching? And is this something that has informed your current research?
1: Less my research, but more my day-to-day teaching style, Mm -hmm. I guess. I would say my research nowadays is more focused on just trying to figure out what intercultural competence or global competence looks like. And from there, what the students need, and then sometime in the future, Okay, what are the the appropriate classroom activities or or what kind of pedagogy is going to help them um, to get whatever those skills or attitudes or knowledge, whatever that ends up being. So that is a little in terms of my research, I'd say it's still ahead of me. But of course, I'm a teacher and I'm teaching as I research um, based more on what I read or, to be honest, just what I see playing out in front of me that, yeah, group discussion, I think, is so important. Because if we're teaching languages, students need to learn the language that enables them to express their realities, mm-hmm. um, to express their own stories, I, I think. And I, I remember when I was a student myself studying Japanese at university, I, for some reason I have a very clear memory of one oral test where a professor asked me what my father did. And I told her with a completely straight face that he was a professional tennis player. Because I knew how to say that and I didn't know how to say, you know, he was a surveyor um, working with the government. And I think this is a problem that we see in language teaching materials, um, that if we're, I guess, teaching a specific set of structures rather than, I guess, helping the students to figure out what they want to be able to say and then helping them to figure out how to say that. Um, then I think we're not really succeeding in teaching language in a way that students are actually going to be able to use it.
0: Yeah it was a consideration uh, at my current university when we were trying to update the syllabus to try and make it match more of the requirements of the top global university program to try and prepare students to become more confident more competent and then more better able to independently use the language for things that they wanted to do in the future and it's really really difficult to mm-hmm. when you have that as quite a, a long term aim to systematically build up towards it with a you know a series of courses that prepare well as you say all these competences but also trying to just make them more confident that they are able to you know interact using a foreign language
1: yeah yeah i think it's very complex and particularly within a, a structured education system where we have to give grades and we have to prepare you know a syllabus before we've even met the students hmm. it's very difficult
0: well then let's talk about uh you mentioned uh your own studies and you're currently undertaking a phd at macquarie university is that correct
1: that's right yeah
0: why did you choose macquarie
1: Um, I'm Australian, and so there are benefits for me to studying at an Australian university financially. Um, But it's also the place where I undertook my master's Mm -hmm. studies many, many years ago. Um, And and it allows me to study distance. So I I can be in Japan and I can complete the whole process online without having to to go back to the university. Um, But I think, yeah, my main reason is probably my master's experience was Mm. very positive
0: we've spoken with people who have of course completed their phds and also people who are just about to do their viva and people who are just beginning the uh the selection of the the course and we're speaking to you kind of in the middle of your research in the middle of your uh process so where would you say you are in the in the process are you completing data collection are you writing up
1: I'm I'm doing a bit of everything, really. So I am I, uh, studying part-time. Mm-hmm. I meet a lot of people who do a full-time PhD while being a full-time teacher, while being a full-time parent, and I have mm-hmm. no idea how they do it. Um, so I'm part-time, which means that, that I'm spacing it out over six years. Mm-hmm. And this is my third year. Um, but I've elected to do a PhD by publication so that I'm... So sort of publishing along the way. So I'm writing kind of as I complete one section of my methodology, basically. Um, and so where I'm up to now is the final round of data collection, which is an exciting place to be at last. Mm. Um, and yeah, then I'll be more dedicated to just the writing side of things after that.
0: So how has your opinion and your uh, approach changed since this paper. So this paper came out five years ago
1: yeah.
0: and I'm assuming this is from your master's degree?
1: Uh, no this is not, this is oh. after my master's degree and, and just for fun.
0: <laughs> as fun as research can be. Um, <laughs>
1: did
0: uh, did the work that you did here, obviously it's, it's, in the, it's in a similar area but you've gone into a lot more uh, in a lot more depth, in order to prepare a PhD proposal. So, how is your approach different now than it was when writing this paper?
1: Now, when you suggested to me that we would talk about this paper, I was a little worried mm-hmm. um, and I went back and read it because I thought, gosh, I had no idea what I was talking about when I wrote <laughs> um, And I read through it and thought, huh, oh. <laughs> like I've done a lot more reading and a lot more um, research, but mm. In terms of the actual things that I find work in a class, I'm still probably not moved that far away from where I am. I'm just understanding it a little better, I think, um, and, and figuring out ways to actually ascertain whether you know what I was aiming for then um, and, and the ways that I was trying to do that were actually effective or not. Um, but I focused in that paper on the importance of really helping students to become self-reflective and to understand who they are and and why they think what they think and why they do what they do. And and, and from there, the fact that, you know, not everybody thinks that way or does those things. And and there are reasons for that. Um, And I think that's really important for any effective communication that we need to be able to consider that Our normal is not everyone's. And it sounds so obvious, but we make so many judgments, I think, every day based on what is normal for us and and the values that we have. Um, And I really find in in Japan, um, it takes a group of students quite a while to be able to critically reflect on themselves and their identities. Mm -hmm. And we usually end up starting at the layer of very explicit culture. I'm Japanese, therefore... My culture is ikebana and uh, tea ceremony and and moving from there to a kind of deeper personal level is, is quite tricky um, for some students, but it's very valuable, I think, in helping them to realize: oh, this this is what I really believe is important, and this is why I do these things that I do. And then from there to be able to think about why other people are different and, and how to effectively negotiate i think when there are differences that are hard to understand i think yeah. i've moved away from your original question quite a long way there sorry
0: no it's perfectly fine and it, it kind of matches some of the things that uh, we're doing again for the top global university project we started a new school the school of interdisciplinary studies and their first year of english the, the first semester they study something called global issues and then in the second semester they uh, study something called Japanese issues mm-hmm. and in the, the difference is in the second semester they are actually joined by students from other countries mm-hmm. so they have to kind of deconstruct as you say their own understanding of what culture and what Japanese society is in order to explain it and discuss it with people who've never lived here before mm-hmm. so it's um, it certainly is something that requires a lot of Preparation and uh, yeah, confidence in mm. order to in order to achieve. Let's um, talk about the specifics of your PhD. What kind of data are you collecting? Is it uh, observations? Are you doing interviews?
1: The question, if I can start with that, the question questions that I'm seeking to find answers to mm-hmm. are first off, what is global competence in mm. Japan in terms of specific Attributes or skills or knowledge that educators and especially foreign language educators um, can help students to develop. So, the first question is just what is it? What should we be aiming for? And then the second question is well, what about that is particularly challenging for students here in Japan? Um, And the reason why I wanted to look at that as well is that as an educator myself, I think that knowing what we're aiming for and knowing what's likely to hinder us from getting there are two very important things to know before I start developing a syllabus or or figuring out, you know, the kind of um, classroom activities that I, I want to do. Um, so that's what I wanted to look at. And because of the, I guess, Western-centric nature of most of the language, uh, and also the fact, I'm sorry, most of the literature, <laughs> and also the fact that um, most explorations of what global competence is are based on um, experts, expert opinions, and which usually means um, administrators in higher education Mm. or researchers. Um, I wasn't sure about the validity of that, and I thought, well, we probably need to involve students in that discussion, as well as educators and researchers and people who have experience working in the world. Mm. (laughs) I would say global professionals, I guess. So I wanted to get opinions from those groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I've elected to do is a, what's called a Delphi study, mm-hmm. which is a way of structuring a group conversation um, and hopefully arriving at some kind of consensus or consen- a few consensus, maybe a few different answers that, um, that, that people agree on to some extent as answering those research questions. Um, And so what a Delphi study looks like is, I I get a group of people where I have representatives from those four, what I'm calling stakeholder groups, Mm -hmm. and I ask them my research questions. Um, I I collected a whole lot of open-ended responses first, and then created a questionnaire where I asked the panel participants are called a panel ask them to tell me well which of these are most important for global competence which are most difficult and then I analyze that information and I provide some of the results back um, and and put together another questionnaire based on the responses Mm -hmm. Um, and that happens over three rounds and the idea is that hopefully um, people who are involved are given the opportunity to think quite deeply about the questions, they're given the opportunity to see what other people are saying about those questions and maybe to um, revise their own answers if they hear something that they think, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. And at the end, hopefully, and this is is what we will see (laughs) in the next few weeks, hopefully um, a couple of answers come out of, well, this is one way of thinking about what global competence really means. Now, this is another way of thinking about it. Ideally, you know, there'd be one perfect answer, but I don't think that's the way the world works. I think there will be more than one answer and that's okay. Um, But hopefully we'll give some insight into, in Japan, all of these projects that we're doing and all of these policies about global Jinzai, what should we actually be um, trying to head towards? What are the desirable outcomes?
0: Well, that's an important question uh to ask and certainly uh, an important one to answer and i think the way that you're approaching your research actually does allow for people to kind of as you say think more deeply but also share their opinions with people who they have never met and probably will never meet but it's often difficult when you're planning new courses and you're planning things based on research to not know what's happening and what's being said in other contexts so mm. I'm assuming that the people who are um, contributing to your work are working at different universities different types of activities
1: yeah that's right that's right um, and and because it's a it's a anonymous a, a way to contribute to a discussion anonymously the participants mm-hmm. don't meet each other right they mm-hmm. submit their ideas Ideas and I try and put those into a, a way, a, a kind of feedback that's easy to understand. And, um, and then they have a look at that and then they contribute more ideas. So the idea is that hopefully students are not, you know, feeling unable to say what they think because the teacher's in the room, for example, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, when we don't have teachers who are looking at the researchers and thinking, oh, well, they're probably right. I should change my answer. Yeah, hopefully hopefully um it's a format that allows people to to say what they think and also to to learn from each other and change their opinions if they want to without you know losing face doing that
0: i'm interested to speak to you a little bit more about uh stakeholder groups because this is something that came up a lot in in my research that people in different positions within the university structure are going to have a different way of observing and you know, recommending things to be done based on either their experience or, as you say, what they're trying to get out of it. So administrators are going to have much more power than individual students and individual teachers, but they might not have the, you know, the best understanding of the decisions they had to make. And one of the people that who we interviewed was uh, Dr. Rakshanderu, who did her research in Osaka and then went Specifically to the administration, and said what she had found. So she was looking at ways that English taught programs assist international students in Japan. And when she found out the things that were going well well with it, she told the administration this, and then when she told found the things that weren't going very well, she also informed the administration and tried to make specific policy changes mm-hmm. based on her research. Is this something that you're planning to do in the future?
1: I mean, it really depends what I end up with at the end, I guess, how I, how I can use it or, or, I guess, disseminate what I find. But I really, it really concerns me that so much of the research or the teaching policies uh, in Japan that are connected to intercultural competence or global competence, mm-hmm. so many of those um, seem to select an existing framework Um, and then just go from there. Despite the fact that these frameworks haven't been developed in Japan, they haven't been tested really in terms of whether it's okay to expect or or to desire a group of Japanese students to, um, I guess, aim for the same kinds of skills or the same kinds of knowledge as a group of, for example, American students. Um, And it might be that the model is truly universal. Um, But I doubt it. I really do. I think the needs of the students in my class are not the same as the needs of the students in another class, let alone another country. And I do hope to be able to contribute in some way there to even just raising awareness that it's it's not great to just assume that um, something that's been developed in another country applies here as well. And it's worth looking at that in a bit more detail. And and seeing, you know, do we need to create some kind of model or framework or, you know, a list of target skills or, or mm. things like that for use in Japan? Uh, maybe we don't, but maybe we do. And so I'd like to, I guess, raise awareness about the importance of thinking about that, at least.
0: Well, one of the things that I drew me to your, to your research is that it is kind of a, it's a way of addressing something that we as teachers know it can be an issue but it's often difficult to explain to the administration or to the people who are actually making decisions why it's happening and so being able to evaluate in your own class your own students and do that at the beginning of the course at the beginning of their studies i think it will have you know positive effects maybe two three years later or even when when they finished uh, their studies because the idea of culture which is oftentimes thrown in there as kind of like the, the the fifth skill you've done reading writing listening speaking and then there is the undercurrent of the contextual culture which is oftentimes not even addressed but when it is addressed like you said it's oftentimes just on the surface culture Mm -hmm. and it doesn't dig down into the the reasons why people uh speak and act and, and and think in these certain ways how would you let's say for example a new teacher comes from australia comes to japan and it's their first time living and working with Japanese students, would you have any useful, specific advice for that person to um, get up to speed on the classroom culture in Japan?
1: Now that's a difficult question um, because I myself um, have some some cultural blinders on these days. Mm-hmm. I think, as much as I'm trying to help my students be aware of them, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I tend to forget what's normal in an Australian classroom or what's not. <laughs> Um, But I think, you know, people talk a lot about the high school education system and how that carries over. So -hmm. you you get a group of students at the university level who aren't used to saying their opinions and and aren't used to asking questions. And, you know, it it is changing, I think. I really do think it's changing. People still talk about this a lot, but uh, I think it's just a matter of being sensitive to the fact that, you know, if you aren't used to, putting up your hand and, and questioning your teacher, then it's just a matter of helping students to be comfortable and explaining to them explicitly, you know, what you're going to be doing in the class, um, how you'd like them to try and respond, what's appropriate, what's not, and why. And I, I think that being able to explain look, why we're doing this is because, you know, in, in the future when you're communicating with people, there are gonna be these kinds of difficulties. There are gonna be these kinds of different expectations. And that happens in our class as well. Um, And so just talking about that with students and noticing differences in expectations or differences in, you know, ideas about what a classroom is and what students do and what teachers do, and then working together to, I guess, make deliberate choices about, well, what are we going to do in this class? You know, are you comfortable raising your hand and volunteering an answer if I ask, or do you want me to just pick a student? Is that more comfortable for you? So I think just, yeah, telling, helping teachers to understand the way that you're used to teaching is not the way that other people are necessarily used to learning. And it's worthwhile just talking about it um, openly.
0: I think that universities have a lot of responsibility in this as well, because the way that students enter universities in Japan often that have, then has a washback effect on the ways that they approach the study particularly in their in their later high school years when they're aiming to get into a specific university they're aiming for a specific entrance exam mm. and i think it then funnels their attention towards the exam yeah. rather than what they'll get out of the university experience yeah. so i think the first thing to go by the wayside is speaking it's the first thing it's the easiest thing to cut because it takes the longest amount of time to hear everybody from everyone in the classroom. So it's the easiest one for the teacher to kind of, to skip over, um, to get to other content. So I think universities, if they required a different kind of entrance competency, Mm. then I think that that would make the teachers consider these type of interactional activities more valuable uh in class time
1: yeah i think that's definitely a big part i i would say even more than uh speaking i would suggest that communicating is probably what's missing that mm. i mean as it is students aren't asked to to speak um in the exams but they i i think speaking when it is taught is a matter of remembering something and it's largely about pronunciation um, and memorization mm. and i think When we're talking about communication, it can be written communication as well, but not focusing on translating or analyzing accuracy, but rather just being able to bring together all the strands of grammar and vocabulary and all of those things that they've learned. And they've learned so much of that Mm. um, to produce something that communicates something, whether that's a written communication or a spoken communication. But it's of course it's difficult to set exams like that. You know they've tried. I I have mixed feelings about the attempts that they're mm. making. Uh, I think the fact that there are entrance exams really um, has a huge impact on high school education because how how can you listen to 500 students trying to communicate you something something to you? It, it's not practicable. So it's certainly I agree a very big. Um, factor, and I really don't have an answer for how that can
0: be. Well, I think if we put more of the emphasis on the students, I mean, that's what I picked out of your paper: the idea of group discussion, and because there is this kind of goal-oriented uh, approach to mm. to language teaching, and it's not just in Japan; it's it's uh, it's a problem in in many countries around the world as as well um but because it's kind of goal oriented then sitting in a group discussing a few questions practicing building up your confidence to raise your hand or, or just to speak out uh, in the group um it seems like there's no goal there so why would you encourage that activity if you're not going to test it why would you encourage people to do it and i think that way if we if we could turn the classroom away from being just goal oriented to like being process oriented at the same mm. time mm. and you know give more responsibility to the students and kind of uh, make it more student-centered mm. than uh, than teacher-centered maybe I
1: mm. Mm. absolutely and I, I think goals themselves are okay but the nature of mm. the goal is the problem isn't it and w- what i've really found most enjoyable and rewarding I think in my teaching up to now have been the kinds of projects that involve a very real end result for students you know making Mm -hmm. a video which they're then going to show to the international students and talk about together or putting together a workshop and going to JICA and and implementing that workshop with trainees there Mm -hmm. those kinds of projects where there's a real reason you know not a kind of pretend reason where we don't really need to be using english to achieve these ends but we're right. pretending that we do but a real reason to use the language to communicate something those kind of end goals i think are really motivating and and you're right the process there is the, the the actual you know what they produce at the end often is not as important as the process of getting there though and and the thought process of how are we going to do this how are we going to communicate this to these people, you know, who are we gonna be talking to? What kind of language is is appropriate to use? And that whole process of figuring out the the problem or the project um, is really valuable, I think. But yeah, it is difficult to um, balance those kinds of projects with the need to, you know, write a grade on a piece of paper at the end of the semester. Mm. It's a tension that's always gonna be there, I think.
0: It's something that came up when I spoke to Dr. Mark Helgeson in his book on the science of happiness and coming up with activities that made students interact in kind of non-traditional ways. For example, giving, uh, giving students two pieces of chocolate and one's for them and another person, uh, but the other one is they have to go and find someone on campus who they think needs cheering up and when they go and take the chocolate to them, they have to explain where it's come from and why they would like them to have it, and then come back to the class and report who they spoke to and who they gave it to and why, and so these real-life interactions, and we we spoke a lot about uh, how to get students, um, you know, how to increase the amount of kinetic energy in interactions, Mm -hmm. so merely standing up, moving around, throwing a soft toy towards the person who you want to speak to, or leaving the classroom for a few minutes, coming back in and and reporting. Um, These are all inventive ways that I think, like I said, I think the universities should get more involved in the high school teaching as well, because there are these programs out there that if the students could see what they were moving up to in one or two years, then they might feel more motivated to interact more, even, even if there wasn't a goal.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you, you talk to a lot of students at the first grade level who are quite resentful of the mm. fact that they didn't get that opportunity to, to mm. use English to communicate in the high school level. And and at the same time, you know, there are educators who are saying, you know, my students don't want to talk to each other. So it's a real <laughs> case of, well, is it motivation problem or is it the opportunity or, or is it just because nobody has time because they have to study for the exams? But, yeah, it's certainly, um, I think, would we would we would benefit from looking at the whole education system um, rather than, you know, cutting it off at the high school level and and looking at university as a whole separate, um, a whole separate exercise.
0: You're right. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, your process from here on in. So you're in year three, and you said you, you are going to publish this work. Is that would that be later on this year?
1: Uh, so I have a, a paper that is under review, <laughs> mm-hmm. hopefully going to be accepted, but you never know, from, I guess, the first phase of the research. So mm-hmm. the first step for me, um, because there's not a lot of literature available talking about what global competence in Japan looks like, um, that's not you know actually based on it, some kind of Western model, mm-hmm. I had to gather a lot of qualitative data a lot of opinions from a wider group than my Delphi panel mm. um, of just what kinds of things should we be thinking about or talking about when we're, you know, figuring out what global competence needs to look like. Um, and so that initial round of gathering opinions from a much wider population, but the same four kinds of stakeholder groups mm-hmm. um, is what hopefully will be published this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was on the sort of on that foundation that I developed the whole Delphi study um and yeah the the results of that well who knows how long it will take but um I'm I'm working on having a paper written about that in the next year I guess yeah and then it's a matter of bringing it all together into the dissertation format after that
0: and how many publications do you need in order to graduate is there a is there a minimum level
1: this is something that uh People don't really seem to know. It's it's a relatively new format at Macquarie,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and the, the official recommendation is somewhere between two and four or five, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the actual reality of how many of those papers are published right. is a lot less because you know it's it's not easy if you're doing a full time PhD to write the papers and get them published in the three mm-hmm. year period. So, yeah, I, I'm aiming for for three perhaps, and then. Filling in the gaps, I guess, with with um, chapters for things that aren't necessarily not. I don't want to say paper worthy, but you, you know, you write a paper and you you have are constrained by the word limit. So I guess it's filling in those details that don't make it into the papers.
0: It's a it's an interesting process because I know people who have uh, completed a kind of a more traditional style of PhD, and then they've they have a thesis but it's very difficult to then convert that into into just a paper, as Mm. you say. Mm. So um, one of the interviews that uh, we've had recently was with a a student who completed their PhD and then with the support of a publisher turned it into a book. I wonder if that's something that you might be looking into in the future if you you have so much more uh, to say. Mm. Um, Are you interested in uh, Publishing a, a book from your thesis?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, as a, a, a researcher and lecturer, as a person who's employed to teach but also to research, mm-hmm. um, you know that I'm I need to produce a certain amount of research year, or, or you know, I, I need to show that I'm producing things, and that was mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I chose the my publication format. Um, And so I I wonder if the majority of what I have to say, uh, hopefully, will be in those papers. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be able to reproduce that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I feel like I might just be pandering to my own ego a little if I put that <laughs> into a book as well. <laughs> um, what I'd like to do is to, you know, to finish the PhD and then to continue the next step, which is what I really want to get to is looking mm. at, okay, so what does this mean for what I teach and the way I teach it? You know, I, that that was what started me on this whole journey, and the more I considered that, the more I realised, oh, but I've got to go back and figure out, oh, I've got to go, back, I've got to go back to the beginning and figure it mm-hmm. all out before I can really say useful things about the best way to teach it. And, and so that's what I'd like to focus on next. And yeah, hopefully do some studies around that and, and publish around that.
0: Well, it sounds like you are in an area where the you're creating your own field essentially you are you're going to be you're going to understand the state of the art pretty well and, and from various aspects as well now publishing papers and getting them into journals and um, book chapters and things like that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort how much practical support do you get from your university to help with your publications i understand that they might help with your thesis but mm-hmm. how much do they assist you in writing and redrafting and uh, applying to various journals?
1: I have a feeling that this is probably different for every person. I am provided with the support that I ask for, essentially. (laughs) Um, And I've, you know, I came into this PhD a long time after doing a master's and after doing my own research and, and, you know, getting some research funding and sort of fumbling around and and gradually figuring out, you know, how to do research and how to write that up. So I have been lucky in some ways that I've already done a lot of writing. And Mm. so that I think the support that I really needed from the university was around developing an effective methodology and, Mm -hmm. you know, figuring out how to write, you know, really appropriate consent forms and the ethics, you know, surrounding Mm. all of these. And That was where there was a lot of learning um, for me to do but I've really been allowed to just I guess do what I want to do and and when I feel like I need support then I'll talk to my supervisor or I'll find a writing group or or that kind of thing Um, I think the most valuable thing this year has been you know with everyone being online I I feel less distanced from my Australian counterparts than I have in the past. just simple things like having a group of people who meet on Zoom and say good morning and then write for two hours and then say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That kind of support has been more helpful, I think, than than more formal training in how to write or how to research or, or that kind of thing. But like I said, I really think it's it depends on your supervisor. It depends on how much support you ask for.
0: Well, you bring a good point about what's been happening this year and kind of like the effect, um, both positive and potentially negative on the studies of of various people. Um, Did your university go online or do you keep in-class lessons or how did your university uh, react to the coronavirus problem?
1: Um, So I actually started a new job in April. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm at a university that I have never taught on campus for uh, because we've had a whole year of online classes, right. um, which has been a very interesting and, and challenging experience because, you know, like we talked about, I, I really feel it's so important to be able to tailor your courses to your students and know what they need. And I'm in a new institution, you know, with sort of no baseline knowledge about the kind of students that are in this institution. Right. And I'm I'm only interacting with them online, so it's been it's been challenging. I'm I, I think I'm in a better position for the second year <laughs> than I was for the first.
0: <laughs> I, well, I I wish you the best of luck uh, with with that. Um, a, a final question that I sometimes like to ask, uh, particularly when we're focusing on current research, uh, is what do you think that you have learned? Through the process of doing research, anything that you've learned about yourself or learned about uh, the activity of research. So obviously, you you said you needed to learn about uh, writing consent forms and you know correctly drafting these kind of fairly practical things. Mm-hmm. But is is there anything that that else that you have found rewarding about the process?
1: Yeah, I could talk about this at great length. But I'll try not to. <laughs> um, I think one of the amazing things about doing a PhD is that you're you're given a lot of time to really figure out how to do something, hopefully Mm -hmm. well. You know, I started off without knowing what the Delphi method was Mm -hmm. um, and, and just looking into different ways of exploring opinions. Basically, this this whole thing is, you know, it's based on people's opinions. It's not something that we can measure by some kind of precise tool because we're trying to figure out. You know what global competence actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I I learned a whole new methodology. I I adapted that. I used something called Q method in the middle of the Delphi study, and I couldn't find anyone who'd done that before, which scared the life out of me. Um, but I, it really also encouraged me to connect with a lot of researchers who I think perhaps I would have been too scared to directly approach. But. Mm. I just needed to my supervisor was not familiar with my methods uh, or or my potential method at that at that time and so I you know I found something called the Q methods sort of it's an organization they have a a, an annual conference about the methodology they have an on uh, uh, what do you call it like an email group Mm
0: -hmm. and I
1: just sort of got enough nerve to just start asking people look I'm trying to I'm thinking about doing this is that a really stupid idea and you know, I met people who connected me to other people, I had Zoom conversations with people, and um, I I just really realized how willing people are to share and teach, I think, um, regardless of how, you know, famous they might be, or how well known, and I really realized the, I felt like I realized the validity of what I was doing through Mm -hmm. those conversations, Um, and I gained a lot of confidence that, you know it, it's okay if nobody's done this before it, it might still be you know that, that might be a reason why it's worth trying and and I've I've gained a lot of confidence and I've really yeah I'll leave it there <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does it's
0: one of those things that once you've done it once it's then it makes it easier to do it again so once you've learned a methodology it takes a whole lot of time to learn it the first time, but Mm -hmm. once you've got it, applying it then becomes uh, easier in the future. Actually, listening to to you speak there, um, I was reminded of the last year of producing this podcast and reaching out to people and asking, would you like to join us for an interview? Would you like to talk about this paper? Would you like to uh, share your experiences with other people? And so the first time reaching out to, as you say, um, we've had some pretty big names in, in my field on so Professor Matsuda, mm. Professor Jenkins, Professor Hino, and speaking with them has, has been very rewarding. Uh, but yeah, it is it is nerve inducing to start with, mm. yeah. The paper we've been discussing today is Teaching Intercultural Competence, More Than Just Culture. And we've been speaking with Fern Sakamoto. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. I wish you all the best of luck in your future research. And if you have any future publications, uh, it would be great to have you back for another interview.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.